and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Hannah White. A crashing pound, a rebuke from the IMF, an intervention from the Bank of England. Was Kwasi Kwarteng's mini-budget really only a week ago? Chancellor insists his plans are what the country needs, and Number 10 insists that Liz Truss is sticking by her Chancellor. We are going to make our way through the debris to try and work out what is going on in the economy and in government. We'll look back at the Labour Party conference and where that has left Keir Starmer and the opposition. And then we'll look ahead to the Conservative Party conference in Birmingham, which will, it is safe to say, be rather lively. Joining me this week are two IFG colleagues who have been watching developments with a mixture of fascination and, I imagine, shock. But Giles Wilkes, our senior fellow, and Tom Pope, our deputy chief economist, have pulled themselves together and are dialing in now. Hi, Giles. Hi, Tom. Good morning. Morning. How are you both feeling? Oh, um, I, I'm loving it because as an economist, you're getting to watch history in action. I'm just worried I'm going to run out of popcorn. <laughs> Tom? No, I, I'm slightly more on the tired end of things, I think, but it's certainly not boring. And I'm delighted to say we're also joined by Sumeya Keynes, who is Britain Economics Editor at The Economist and host of their Money Talks podcast. Hi, Sumeya. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. You used to cover trade for The Economist and now you're on The Economy. You obviously don't look for the quiet uh, jobs, do you? No, I think, I, I think I'm cursed. Um, <laughs> I think that's the only possible explanation. Right. Well, let's start with the economics. This story is moving incredibly fast. So by the time you listen to this and we are recording at midday on Thursday, who knows where we will be? Tom, can you give us a quick timeline up to where we are now? It all began with Kwasi Kwarteng's statement to MPs last Friday. Yes, I'll do my best. So as, as you say, crossing statement on, on Friday, which it's fair to say was a surprise. Um, there was even more in there than had already been briefed and what had been briefed was pretty big already. Um, there were immediate market movements, the pound fell, guilt rates, the cost of government borrowing rose. Then over the weekend, we had further briefing um, that the government intended to go even further, doubling down, if you like, um, suggesting this was just the beginning of, um, of their plans on tax. Um, on Monday, markets opened, more market turmoil, further rising guilt rates. That was followed by statements from both the bank and the Treasury, uh, the bank confirming that it would be doing what was necessary to fulfil its inflation mandate, uh, the Treasury saying that they would be setting out their medium-term plan for fiscal policy late in November. Then we get to Tuesday and the IMF comes out and criticises the UK and what I think it's fair to say was a pretty um, unusual and pointed intervention from them. And then we get to yesterday and the Bank of England uh, makes that emergency intervention in the gilt market um, to, to deal with short-term issues that pension funds were facing, some liquidity issues in that market. Um, and then uh, come to Thursday and we had uh, Liz Truss's regional radio tour, where again, she seemed to be doubling down even further and not even acknowledging that there was a crisis. And I mean, given that Trust did flag throughout the leadership campaign that this was, you know, going to be broadly her approach. Why do you think we've seen the extent of the reaction we have, Tom? It's a really good question. As you say, we, we already knew that most of the tax cuts that were coming on Friday, they'd already been pre-brief. We knew that they were coming. I think it's a combination of a few things as to why uh, the market reacted quite in the way it did. Firstly, that they went even further on tax cuts than they'd suggested they would, but um, particularly with the the top rate of tax, but actually that measure in itself is not fiscally that expensive. And I think what, what's going on here, you can't really understand just on the basis of the policies that are announced. In many ways, it's the 
what's going on around it and, if, if you like, the sort of fiscal vibe. Um, the fact that there was no OBR forecast, the sense that uh, the Treasury had been somewhat sidelines in this, um, obviously the earlier sacking of Tom Scholar. I think it's not so much the measures that were announced, it's more the fact that this seemed to be pointing the government in a particular direction and suggesting that they were going to go much further along the path. And Samir, you're good at explaining this stuff for, for non-economists. What, can you tell us what's happening to the pound and to the gilt markets and why, why it matters? Yeah, I mean, my interpretation is essentially the same as Tom's, which is that the, the fiscal vibes were bad. Um, and that essentially meant that international investors were no longer quite so keen to hold British assets. Right. And, and so if that happens, then there are two things that can happen. Um, you know, it could be that the, the value of the currency depreciates so that British assets are cheaper to buy. Um, or it could be that the rate of the return on those assets has to rise, which is, you know, what happened um, to government debt. Uh, and so, so yeah, general um, loss of confidence in, in the government's fiscal competence, um, that is going to be hard to regain. And, I, I mean, you, you talk about um, who wants to invest in the UK. What does this all mean for the UK's international financial standing? Is, it, is there permanent damage being done here or is this a temporary effect? It's it's fairly embarrassing, and I was really struck by um, all of the American commentators weighing in um, to to really you know, trash what's what's been happening in the UK. Uh, there aren't I haven't been seeing um, people saying very very nice things, and and I mean you know this is coming in context, right? You know there was Brexit, um, which already sort of damaged. Um, damaged Britain's standing in the world or, you know, perceptions that, that you know, the British government or, the, you know, even the, the public would, would vote for kind of economically um, <clears throat> the most advantageous thing. So it's coming on the back of, of this kind of longer term trend. Um, although, again, I, I guess, you know, people have been asking me, what does the government need to do to fix this? Um, in the short run, it's really difficult to know what, given, you know, it, it, it's that the signal that they were sending was one in which um, that, that there was just a lot more uncertainty about about the outlook for the public finances and, and the economy in general. That uncertainty is is going to be you know, hard to to it's going to be hard to prove that actually things are stable um, when you're in this bad equilibrium. Yeah, and, and and Giles, just give us a sense of perspective on this or the history. How does how does what's going on now rank against past moments of drama in our economic history? This is where you should be glad you got someone as old as me onto the podcast because I actually <laughs> remember. I, I know I know what you were thinking. Um, uh, I'm old enough to remember 1992, and I've studied economic history because I now feel I'm a little bit a part of it. And um, the point is, I mean, as both Tom and Sumeya have said, I mean. The pound falling is definitely a bad signal. It's not always a bad signal. In 1992, for example, um, the government lost its credibility, but the fall of the pound back then enabled monetary policy to be much easier for the next few years. And the British economy boomed in an absolutely ideal way for the next five, six, seven years, and then actually into a 15-year expansion. So you have to look at pairs of markets. Uh, in this situation, because the pound fell and the gilt yields were rising, this was as they both said, a terrible signal that if you want to invest in this country, you're going to need a much, much higher return. 
and it immediately impacts everything else. It impacts mortgage rates in particular. Um, It was also a sign of market dysfunction. It was a sign that the government bond markets couldn't actually absorb um, the amount of selling that was going on and all sorts of hedges that are being put on for complicated reasons to do with the liabilities that pension funds have were beginning to have to be unwound at speed because of margin calls. And if the Bank of England hadn't intervened yesterday, there might have been a really disorderly collapse in the pensions industry. Now, these are no, none of the, these are great signs. And as far as I can see, although 1992, which is the previous, well, I suppose 2008 is the other time where you could see a government seeming to lose control. But um, I would say that this one is worse than both. In um, 1992, it was the government inheriting a, a currency peg that it couldn't um, defend anymore. And that was a terrible mistake made a couple of years before. But actually leaving it was a great thing for the economy. And we had a great economy. 2008, it was a global financial crisis. And in the end, the United Kingdom kind of led the way intellectually in taking the right approach, recapitalizing the banks. In this case, we had difficult international circumstances, Putin, energy bills, and um, basically weak equity markets, suggesting everyone's a bit worried about global recession. Yeah, all of that's true. But then this government chooses to do exactly the opposite to what everyone else is doing, which is trying to put in a credible plan for how you can fund the support that the economy needs. Instead, they added £45 billion to the deficit, going out into the distance with no plan for how to fund it, no plan for how to fund the energy bill support. And so although Tom's right that a lot of this was understood, by the time he even stood up on Friday, um, the guilt borrowing rates had already risen all the way through August as people had started absorbing this. So it was like the straw that broke the camel's back when he then kept saying, and I have another measure to announce, Mr. Speaker. Every time he did that, borrowing rates went up by another 10 basis points. And the weekend of briefing was incredibly inept. It was like saying, I haven't listened at all to the market. In fact, I'm going to double down. So yes, it's vibes. But yes, it's also, it's really difficult to absorb an extra half a trillion of gilts. And we've we've learned that as Mark Carney put it, you're reliant on the kindness of strangers. That kindness can just disappear. So I would say, to come around to your question, in historical terms, I think this is the biggest self-inflicted injury I can think of um, in the modern era. I can't think of a bigger one. I think that's an important distinction that, that the Giles makes, that there, there have been worse crises that um, you know, the, the UK government has faced economically, uh, 76, 92, 2008. Um, None of those self-inflicted in quite the way that, that this one was, and so avoidable, seemingly in policy terms. And Giles, um, you, you used to work in number ten. Number ten thus far sticking to their guns on this. Um, yeah. Do you think that's going to hold? I mean, what do you think will be going on in number ten, uh, number eleven right now? And and what what do you make of uh, reports about standing rows between the PM and the Chancellor? Well, I mean, a, a few points. One, she's hollowed out the operation there, and it's incredibly new. So there's no continuity in sort of grey beards around who can kind of say, this is what we normally do, and this is how you can solve it. Um, some of the rooms that used to be thronging with policy officials are now just meeting rooms, I'm told. Um, number two, they've got this policy of denial. They've sent senior ministers out onto the airwaves to say, this is all happening, not because of any mistakes we've made, but because situations are really difficult. And in 92... In 2007, when he denied that he was having an election, in 2017, when Theresa May denied that she'd done a U-turn on social care, when the, it's always this that the voters absolutely hate the most. They don't like it when the government doesn't look like it's being frank. So I think that's a quite a poor policy. Will they turn around? I mean, 
predictions are difficult, particularly about the future. I would say, obviously, um, any kind of a U-turn is incredibly damaging politically for the government. It's better to U-turn away from a bad policy and carry on regardless. The way they're likely to carry on is to announce significant spending um, cuts in the years ahead. What's really intriguing for me is whether a chancellor who's been very weakened by the last week is able to force that through departments because why would you why would you do something really difficult for which you have to front up the pain if you think the guy you're doing it for isn't going to be there for long and has got you into this mess in the first place so spending cuts are coming whether they're credible that's another question one thing i might add to that is that the, the government has really reduced its its kind of political room for maneuver here right by announcing a cut in the top rate of income tax by announcing reforms to bankers bonuses the politics of saying, oh, and by the way, you know, perhaps there needs to be spending restraint on public services. Or, you know, I've even seen reports that the government might not increase benefits by the full amount of inflation. Right. The the, the question, well, why why should we take the pain when those people there aren't taking it? Um, that That's a really, really nasty political dynamic that the government is going to be confronting. And it's not even as though trusts had a lot of support in Parliament before any of this started, I guess. So, Mayor, I mean, the IFG uh, perennial focus is, is often on, on sort of the institutions and processes of, of government. How much of the sort of extent of the problem we're seeing now do you think can be attributed to the fact that the government sidestepped the ABR, got rid of the Treasury um, Permanent Secretary Tom Scholar, generally sort of seemed to look as though it didn't care about the views of institutions and or, or want to hear expert advice? Yeah, I think rather a lot. Um, I think, you know, we, we're used to seeing alongside these big fiscal announcements, a full set of new forecasts, right? I mean, we know that the OBR was standing ready to produce, you know, perhaps not the full set of forecasts, but something. And so it was clearly a political decision not to have the OBR um, present its numbers. Um, and I think people, you know, people did see that. And and, and that, again, that sent, that sent a bad signal. Um, I'm, I'm slightly surprised or, you know, so the, so the government is now saying that um, the OBR will publish its forecast um, in late November alongside some new fiscal rules. Um, that seems like a long way away. That seems to be what, what, what people are saying. Um, and, you know, if they haven't got concrete, specific measures then I'm not sure even that will do anything other than just generate more appalling headlines um, and more kind of doom and gloom, um, given that, you know, the economic outlook is just not not looking um, very good right now. And it's, it is certainly looking much worse than it did when the, we got the last set of forecasts back back in March. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me even even the fact of saying we can't tell you for two months almost confirms the worst suspicions of people in in the sense of, of thinking that the government has has made these commitments without knowing how it's going to fund them. Giles, do you think Quarting will be able to wait till November? Do you think he's going to that's going well, to that, I mean, that is the latest discussion. Whether I mean that's six weeks of absolute hell as people speculate about how it goes and watch the markets. I mean, normally we don't all find ourselves refreshing the browser for the gilt ten-year rate, do we? And everyone's going to be looking at that all the time, wondering whether after the Bank of England's two weeks of support, it has to do it again, and and waiting to hear something rhetorically. I mean, it doesn't have to be everything with all the numbers out there. It has to be some acknowledgement that it's irresponsible to assume higher growth, for example, or it's irresponsible to assume that you can cut 1% of GDP off the NHS budget and just make it fixed. I mean, so 
I don't think he can leave a vacuum for six weeks. Um, the OBR, I'm sure, is ready to produce some numbers. And what I suspect is going on is there's an anguished conversation about how they manage that, because the OBR is not going to come out and say, oh, look, the government's improved the supply side. It's going to put those numbers out there that become the talking point in every difficult interview. And so I, I think I think they should go sooner because this is just going to be a slow death otherwise. And as Sumeya and Tom have pointed out, you know, not seeming to use these institutions is a bit like sort of driving blindfold. It's not so much where you're steering. Uh, it's, it's the fact that he's got a blindfold on is particularly scary. Um, you want to know that he's looking at those numbers and cares about them. And I, so I want to see those as soon as possible. I think that's right. But I, I do also think at this point, now that we've got this far, just having the OBR numbers on their own isn't going to help that much. Um, it's probably better at the margin. But at the point when those uh, those forecasts are announced, there does also need to be um, a credible plan to indicate how this is consistent with fiscal sustainability and in the medium term, which does mean a new set of fiscal rules and will mean difficult decisions. Giles mentioned those um, spending cuts uh, that, that may need to come down the line earlier. Certainly our, our work looking at public services doesn't indicate that there's there's much room, at least on day-to-day spending, where you could, could make cuts, where those departments have already been affected by higher inflation, which means that what was originally quite a generous spending review last October is no longer the case. The area where there might be a bit more room would be in capital budgets, where spending is expected to increase quite a lot over the next few years. But then infrastructure projects, um, R&D investment, they're exactly the type of things you'd expect to be driving growth. So a, a government that wanted to, to drive growth wouldn't want to be cutting that either. So I think that you know, the, the events of the last week has have backed the, the chance of someone into a, a corner on this, where yes, he, he does need to um, show commitment to the OBR, but he does also need to explain how these measures are going to fit within that that broader fiscal plan. And Samir, the Bank of England, do you think they're going to be able to wait on in terms of interest rate rises until their next uh, scheduled review? Uh, I suspect they will. I mean, their next meeting is in November. They've got a full forecast round where essentially they're trying to work out what all of this means for the economic outlook. I don't expect they're going to want to, to rush that process um and so and you know Hugh Pill the chief economist gave a speech and and said you know that there is um mentioned that there was reason to you know not not to run monetary policy at very very high frequency right and so you know although there was that emergency intervention um on on September 28th that was that was supposed to be high frequency because that was dealing with disorder in the financial markets. I suspect they're going to to take their time and, and do things as scheduled um, when it comes to monetary policy. Okay, let's rewind now to the Labour Party conference, which was held in Liverpool against the backdrop of all this unfolding economic drama. Giles, Attention was not entirely on events at Liverpool, but I doubt Keir Starmer will have minded too much about that. No, I, I suspect, I mean, Labour are probably pinching themselves, can't believe their luck, because it's very difficult as an opposition party to have anyone pay attention to you. Um, you've got to come up with something to say that interests people when the government's actually getting to do things. And right now, the government seems to have created a position where Labour just needs to stand still and look serious. 
and maybe announce that they're not going to do all of the fiscal things that Kwasi Kwarteng has done. And as a result, they can be the party of both sounder money and maybe compassion and lower mortgage rates. It seems like a, an absolute free shot. So the announcements that I can recall them making, a big publicly owned energy company, about 10 years ago, that would have been that would have had the front cover of a lot of newspapers, maybe even The Economist, showing sort of uh, um, Keir Starmer dressed up as Vladimir Lenin. Um, and now it's pretty normal. You know, um, it, they, they've really shifted the Overton window in that sort of direction. So so has Putin, I suppose. Um, J- Jonathan Reynolds has announced an industrial strategy. And I want to say for one, I'm really excited to see that because somebody needs to keep the flame going. It will be, as Rachel Reeves pointed out in the House on Friday, about the seventh industrial strategy we've had to put up with since they left government but you know that's encouraging um but otherwise i think they must they must be having a good time and they've just got they suddenly having always been cornered by the sort of osborne technique so when george osborne was the chancellor he used to make sure that he was running such a tight ship that labor either had to say we're going to borrow more and fund things and make and that's really sounds terrible just after a financial crisis, or they had to sound incredibly austere and have half of their own party attacking them. That was a terrible trilemma, a dilemma for them. And now they've just got this huge space where they can probably fund a lot of things by simply restoring some of the tax rises that Kwarteng got rid of and um, and then sort of setting out their plans. So they're having a great time fiscally. And I'm not, I'm, I'm not surprised that they seem to be in good cheer. And Tom, you were there in Liverpool as part of an IFG team putting on our bumper programme of uh, IFG fringe events. More generally, how did you judge the mood? It was certainly um, building on what Giles said there. There was an upbeatness to uh, to Labour, I think, this time in a way that perhaps there hasn't been previously. Um, I think a, a quiet confidence. I think you know, while they no doubt would not be welcoming what was going on um, in financial markets, that it, it does sort of make, make Labour's case easier, if you like. I think it was really notable that um, there was a lot of unity there, none of the sort of infighting that perhaps has played previous Labour conferences. And it was really notable as well that lots of the discussion there seemed to be really about preparing for government. This is a, a Labour Party that is increasingly confident that it will be forming the next government. So there's lots of discussion about what is practically possible in Labour's first term or even in policy terms, what might need to wait into a second term. Quite specific discussions like that. And I think certainly reflecting on um, IFG's events, which were almost universally, in fact, I think universally very well attended, and that does speak to, to a party, a conference that has a real interest in how to be effective in government, which, um, yeah, I think that that's a real change to, to previous years. Um, Samir, what did you make of the big speeches from Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves? Yeah, I think at this point, what Labour has to do is not mess up, right? They have to be the the boring, stable party, um, and 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 then they can just you know sit pretty, basically. Um, and you know they have been handed this gift, which is that everything that goes wrong economically over the next few months, um, it's likely that the public will pin that on the government rather than all the other things that actually meant that even without this most recent, um, you know, mess up, um, economically, things would have been pretty bad anyway. Um, and so, you know, if that, that's the aim, I think Kieran, Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves did, did fine, right? <laughs> um, uh, you know, the, the, um, the story is the Tories messed up. Um, that's the line that they need to push that from their perspective will have been fine. 
And now going forward, we've got these very big economic dividing lines, haven't we? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's extraordinary. And it's flipped, right? Um, as uh, as was just said, uh, you know, it used to be that that um, the, the Conservatives were the party of um, austerity and, and Labour weren't. And now that 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 dynamic is has turned on its head. Um, I mean, I suppose it remains to be seen how well they can capitalize on it. Um, now, I'm, you know, an economist, not a political strategist, but I think the game in town is how they're probably trying to work out how how to make sure that the public do pin everything um, on the government. Um, you know, I think obviously the at the next election, if Labour wins, I think the the one the one problem for them is that the economy is going to be in pretty bad shape potentially um much worse shape than it was when say tony blair took over and so that that um does constrain them um and you know is is it's something to for them to be kind of worried about i suppose giles can you talk us through the politics of that that situation that labor if if they were to form the next government and that I agree with Tom that although there was a sort of buoyancy at conference, there was also a lot of caution about not wanting to make any assumptions on that front. But what's the situation they they would inherit if they were going um, into government, you know, a couple of years from now? Well, this is the one, I guess, the big cloud to the silver lining is that um, they don't want to inherit an absolute mess. I mean, Labour governments traditionally do want to do more with the state and have higher public spending. I don't think that's particularly controversial. They have good ideas for what to do with it. And the last thing they need is to inherit something in such a mess that they're having to take austerity decisions themselves. There will be people among them, not me this time, who will remember inheriting 1974 from Ted Heath <laughs> and two years later having 1976. And the 1976 crisis was caused by the barber boom that happened a few years before and Labour were absolutely, you know, destroyed by it and um, had a massive fight with themselves and basically split as a party. So that's a really bad situation. So they don't want trust or absolutely wreck the country just in order to get a decent chance of winning it. Um, so uh, I think in a funny way that when you see them looking serious and angry, they're thinking they're being serious and angry in just the same way you would be when you move into a new house and you suddenly find that it's got dry rot and subsidence. And you think, you know, I've, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be living here. So they, they, I do think they want to be serious. So I think the politics is that they actually don't want the government to mess up the country. I, don't, I do think they're terrified of complacency. Ever since the uh, Back to 92 again, the infamous Neil Kinnock Sheffield rally where they were basically saying, we're in power now and let's have a massive cheer. And then they were out of power for another five years. They've been terrified of complacency and the last few election results have all been really disappointing so um so yeah i think that's the politics of it they in the phrase that somebody used before tony blair won in 97 it's like carrying a ming vase across a slippery floor they're really really careful not to do something and drop it and i think they're going to be leaping on any kind of stupid mistakes made by minor backbenchers that look like it might ruin the sort of serious and uh, governing party image they need to get across and Tom, I mean, presumably they also need to make clear what the public uh, would be voting for if they voted in a, a Labour government. Are we yet? Do we yet have a clear sense of that of what that would be? Has that become much clearer uh, following various speeches and so on at a conference? They've started to put flesh on the bone, I think, and certainly at a higher level. You know, it's probably quite easy to say this would be a government that a, a Labour government would not um, would reverse some of the tax cuts that were announced last week, although importantly, not all of them. They actually t- said they'd accept the income tax 
cut and the uh, reversal of the national insurance rise. Um, you know, it's going to be one that that values the economic institutions. That was something that Rachel Reeves definitely emphasised. And I think in terms of high-level policy, particularly one that's really going to target um, investments and particularly in net zero. And I think that was in terms of the concrete policy announcements of the conference. That's where uh, we saw the most. There was um, the Great British Energy that Giles has already referred to, but also Labour um, bringing forward the, the commitment to clean energy uh, completely clean energy in the UK by 2030, uh, rather than 2035, which is the current target. Now, that no doubt is a, a stretching target and a very hard one to reach, but it also sends a very clear signal about where Labour's priorities are going to be. And one of the big announcements that had already been made before this conference is Labour's intention to spend £28 billion a year in net zero investment. And that does feel like that's going to be a big priority for them. Okay, now let's throw things forward again. The Conservative Party conference is kicking off in Birmingham this weekend. Samaya, um, you're going, I assume. What do you anticipate um, uh, is going to be like? What's the main stories going to be? Yeah, um, well, uh, I think one question I have when, when I am going um, is, you know, essentially the government seems to be trying to give uh, lots of the, you know, the the right of centre think tankers everything they've ever wanted right um and and so one question is well how how are they reacting to that is is this really what they wanted um you know can one follow through on that um i think the the mood there will be pretty um fascinating you know it was striking watching on friday people you know sort of falling over themselves to take credit for for the policies um, that were being announced. And now I think there's a bit more um, caution um, when it comes to to championing them quite so loudly. Um, obviously, all eyes will be on Liz Truss's speech. Um, uh, the other thing that's going to be happening is um, train strikes. Um, and so I, I wonder if um, that is actually going to kind of merge into the political story. Um, there's a strike on the Saturday, in theory, um, you know, conference will, will sort of really get going on the Sunday. Um, it's likely that there'll be more disruption on the Sunday. And then, of course, there's another strike on the Wednesday, right? So, you know, these things are probably not coincidentally timed. Um, and so so we'll be setting up the, the stage for, for another kind of fairly major um, economic conflict in, in the months to come. Yes, and everyone who thinks they're going to conferences is slightly wondering whether they're going to get there at all. Um, what, Samaya, what, what do you think Trust needs to do in her speech and indeed quasi quoting in his? Well, I mean, some, some, um, some more meat on the bones that, you know, they, they can't just say fiscal credibility and then leave it at that, right? Um, I think they need to. Uh, sort of acknowledge um, that, that there is a problem there. You know, there, again, there are reports that, that number 10, that they just see that they just see what's happened as a, as a communications failure, right? Not as a, not as a policy fa- failure. Um, and so there needs to be some kind of recognition that actually it wasn't just that, oh, they didn't trail this well enough and that there was actually a substantive problem um, with what they were doing. I mean, in my ideal world, they'll, they would, you know, reverse, um, a bunch of the tax cuts. It doesn't look like they're going to do that. Um, and I think if we just get platitudes about, um, you know, growth and, um, how this package is going to turbocharge that, 
um, without much evidence, then I, I don't think the reaction is going to be very good. Charles, what's your expectation from the main speeches? It's a, it's a pretty tricky um, decision for them now on what to say, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with Sumer's judgment there that she's not going to stand up there and say, I'm going to U-turn. I mean, we all, we've seen the sort of echoes of Thatcher she's tried to project. And I bet she's surrounded by the people who tell her this is your 1980 moment where she stood up and said the lady's not for turning and got a huge um, round of applause, despite apparently not getting the reference at all to the man for all seasons. But um, so I don't think it's at all her style to say, listen, I get it and I'm going to turn around, which is something that more skillful politicians can do. They can actually make a virtue of being the people who listen and, and change their policy. So I suspect we're going to see more of that kind of bullishness and we're all going to be sort of frantically flipping chrome tabs between um, watching the speech and watching the markets because uh, it's like it's 1976 when you have to judge the mood of the conference to see whether um, government bonds are going to be much more um, expensive to service in future. Uh, it's really tricky as well because everyone knows that she was not really the choice of the MPs. She's meant to be quite popular with the party members. So I'm going up there for a couple of events and I'm going to be really interested to know how deep is that love for Liz Trust that we saw in poll after poll for years, starting under Theresa May. She was the most popular cabinet minister. And I don't know whether it was something about her style or what she was doing as chief secretary or subsequently as the trade secretary, but she's really popular with members. And I want to see whether that's an opinion that has survived contact with the reality of her of a PM and or whether they're all sort of moaning about how they should have kept Johnson. That's that's what's going to be fascinating. And what does Johnson say? Is Johnson going? Do we know that yet? I don't think we think he is, no. Oh, I suppose. He he caused a lot of trouble when he would just turn up and have a big sideshow at Theresa May's one. So he's clearly decided he's not helping his uh, anointed successor if he goes. But, you know, we're all fascinated to know what he would say about this. Tom, we're putting on quite a few IFG fringes about subjects like levelling up and net zero. Do we yet have much sense of how these policies, which were flagships under Boris Johnson, are going to be pursued or not under this new administration? I think on both of those fronts, it's it's a, the, the, what, all we've heard so far in this administration is silence. Frankly, I'm, I'm not actually sure that Liz Truss has uttered the words "levelling up" as Prime Minister yet. And similarly, on net zero, we we get very little sense that that that's a priority. I think were there not the the turmoil. Um, in markets and, and the need to to deal, deal with that, we might be expecting more flesh uh, on the bone, more detail on on those um, policy areas in um, in the speech. Because of course she um, she has been newly elected as Conservative leader, but the the mandate for the Conservative Party, if you like, is still that of the 2019 General Election Manifesto, where both levelling up and net zero were major priorities. So I, I do think we will need to see. More detail from that, if a um, bit beyond sort of general remarks about uh, the fiscal situation, we'll also be looking for for more detail on what uh, the government's actually going to do on those two areas. And with you know, at most a couple of years until the next election, we'll be looking for um, some some real policy detail on that. And and just one final point on that. I mean, again, more crystal ball gazing. But uh, Samaya, obviously, once conference is over. Uh, Parliament is going to return. Presumably, there'll be some opportunity for MPs to debate uh, the uh, the not budget, which was given on the last day before the House rose. Um, what do you think um, 
what do you think is likely to happen there and what are the markets going to be looking for? Yeah, I mean, I don't think this is going down very well. Um, one point that that I wrote in my piece um, for The Economist this week was was um, essentially the, the line from the Treasury seems to be that higher mortgage rates are a problem for uh, the Bank of England to deal with. Um, and I suspect there will be many MPs hearing from very, very worried constituents um, who will be questioning um, that kind of uh, separation of responsibilities. And so that that um, that question of, you know, how much the government should be um, should be doing to to um, I guess to try to offset that um, it will will come up. Um, I mean, it's 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 striking that the the measures. I think there was one one thing on stamp duty, but pretty much everything else hasn't been laid in Parliament yet, right? And so that is going to um, to go through. Uh, you know, I'd be it would be very very surprising if the government um, couldn't get the finance bill through. Um, but I'm not sure it will be as straightforward, perhaps, as previous finance bills. Yeah, we certainly might see some amendments here here and there. And that's it for another episode of Inside Briefing. Many thanks to Tom Pope, Giles Wilkes, and especially to Samaya Keynes. Brilliant to have you on the show. And thank you all for listening at home. You can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify, and all major platforms. And do check out our sister podcast, IFG Live, where you can find our recent in-conversation event with award-winning BBC documentary maker Michael Cockrell. We'll be at the Conservative Conference. If you are there, do come and say hello and come along and join us for our great programme of events. Details are all on our website at instituteforgovernment.org.uk. See you there. If not, we'll be back again next week. Feels like a lot could happen between now and then. Mm -hmm.